Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. How do you deal with guilt and shame? We've all said things that we regret. We've done things that we regret. And those things can have the power to haunt us for a lifetime. Uh, A friend of mine who's in his 70s uh, shared with me recently that he's not had more than just a few hours of uh, space in his life where he wasn't haunted by uh, his past, those regrets. Our culture doesn't like to talk about such things. In fact, if you're discovered to have committed certain types of even cultural sins in your past, you just might be canceled. You may be fired from your job, estranged from your community. So not only do people live with guilt and shame, they also live in fear of those things being discovered by other people. And so what do we do? We try to to wipe our own record clean where we can, right? Get rid of all those Facebook posts from the past. Uh... If there's things you can't wipe clean, try to get ahead of it. Make a public apology. Uh, Do your best to make the case that you have really changed. People try to distract themselves from their own guilt and shame by busyness. The busier I can be, the less I have to think about it. Uh, By just checking out, you know what, whenever I got space, just flood it with um, entertainment, whatever. Um, substances to, uh, to bury the hurt in that shame, uh, you name it. But because our world gives us no place to deal with these things for which we feel guilty and the f- things for which we feel ashamed, what are we left to do? Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus tells us through faith in him that we become freed from guilt and shame. And so the scriptures actually give us an outlet to address our guilt and shame and deal with it openly and honestly without fear. And today we find it in Revelation chapter 20. We've been steadily making our way through the book of Revelation in this series. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it is meant to be a great comfort to people in every generation. So uh, as we've been uh, discussing, this book covers the period of tribulation and persecution throughout the church age. That's between uh, the period of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so this book has been giving us a view uh, from heaven's perspective. It gives it to us in vivid, symbolic language 
that captures a very true reality. And so John has been showing us visions of this age uh, over and over and taking a look at the same things, each from a different camera angle. Let me show it to you here. All right, now let me show it to you from over here. And so we've been seeing that throughout uh, the book. If you remember, we began with the seven seals. Then we saw another camera angle of the seven trumpets. And then we saw yet another angle with the seven bowls of God's wrath. And so in each of these angles, we got to see the cosmic struggle uh, behind our physical reality. And in each shot, each angle, we see Jesus win. And so beginning in chapter 12, we were introduced to all the antagonists, Satan, the dragon, the first beast, the second beast. In chapter 17 and 18, we didn't get to spend uh, time on this, but there was the harlot of Babylon uh, as another minion of the dragon. And uh, one by one, John has recorded their defeat and Christ's victory. And so today's reading gives us the final defeat, that of the dragon, that of Satan himself. And again, what we see is that Jesus wins, and that is to be a great comfort to us. And so now chapter 20 uh, is, is a complicated chapter. It actually brings out uh, the most debate uh, on the book of Revelation. And we could easily spend several weeks just laying out the different ways that people have interpreted this chapter as it relates to the thousand years and how Satan is bound. But instead of spending several weeks on that, I am going to just make a case for what I believe makes the most sense, which is also the dominant uh, historical position. Uh, and yet, it's not the most common or popular interpretation in the United States. And that is due to a couple books and movies and uh, a lot of uh, um, money and, and energy behind that that people think there's another view that is maybe even the only view. So some of this may be uh, new to you. Some of it you may be even just hearing for the first time today. And so um, if you have more questions about this at the end, I would love to spend time with you and, uh, and get into uh, the weeds a little bit more if that is a place that interests you. Um, so uh, I can also rent some, uh, recommend some good books and articles to help with this because I, I know that this for many is, is new. So with that, let's dig in to chapter 20, The Defeat of Satan. So again, we're getting another camera angle to Christ's victory. So what happens to Satan in the end? Let me read the first few verses once again. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, 
he must be set free for a short time. Okay, so what we get in these first few verses is that Satan is thrown out of heaven's court. He is bound for a thousand years, and he is kept from deceiving the nations. Then after that thousand-year period, he'll be set free for a short time, for a minute. Now, what does all of that mean? Well, we've actually already seen this even in the book of Revelation. Let's take a look back at uh, chapter 12, and uh, there we see uh, what happened, as it's recorded a little bit earlier. There it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. And so in chapter 12, what we see is that Christ's victory on the cross is what removes Satan's access to the heavenly court. And so he can no longer make accusations to God about his people, like we have examples of him doing with Job. Uh, let's take a look at Luke 10, verses 17 and 18. There it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so the victory of Satan is also happening as the gospel is being preached. And so Jesus uses this same language of Satan being thrown down in these instances. And so Satan is thrown down and he is bound. Now, if we remember, there's symbolic language being used throughout this book. And so uh, he is, does not have a literal chain thrown over him. He is not put into a literal pit. This is symbolic imagery. Now, to help us wrap our heads around it a little bit more, uh, I want to bring us to Matthew 12, 28 and 29. And there, uh, just preceding these verses, Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And here's how he responds. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? And so he's talking about Satan here. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so that Jesus has come, that he is preaching the good news, that he is casting out demons, means that there's this way that Satan has been bound. The strong man has been bound. And this is the same word that's used in Revelation 20. And so Jesus' ability 
To bring about God's kingdom means that Satan has been bound. His being bound means that he's no longer able to deceive the nations. Now think about this in terms of Old Testament. In the Old Testament, all the nations were being deceived. God's people extended to one nation, the nation of Israel. Yet here, as Jesus comes... As Satan is bound, no longer this ability to deceive all the nations, the gospel then spreads to all nations. And so Satan can no longer deceive the nations all together, right? And so like a wounded animal, he is still dangerous. He can still cause damage. If you have a wounded animal, even if it has a chain around, you don't want to go near that animal within the reach of that chain. However, Satan's power to deceive the scope of the nations has been halted for 1,000 years. All right, let's talk about what 1,000 years means. Again, symbolic language, numbers mean something in this book. And so once we realize that Revelation keeps giving us these different camera angles on the same event of the victory of Jesus, it makes complete sense then that this thousand years is another symbolic description of the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. So it's not a literal thousand years. This is a long period of time, right? And uh, the scriptures use that term, a thousand years, uh, as symbolically for a really long time. It's used all over the place. One place I'll give you, Psalm 90, verse 4. You can see there it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Right? So it's comparing it to a watch in the night, that's a four-hour period. And it's comparing it to yesterday, a 24-hour period. And so what it's saying is not four hours equals exactly 1,000 years to God, or that uh, a 24-hour period equals exactly uh, 1,000 years. It's saying our time in the scope of the way God experiences is so different. A thousand years could feel like the watch of a night, could feel like yesterday. And so it's this symbolic, poetic language. And it's used the same way in Revelation here. So this thousand-year period is a really long time. It's the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Okay, let's take a look at verses 4 and 5. There it says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and did not receive its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, so what we see here 
is that the souls of martyrs and those who died as believers, we are told, rule with Jesus during that thousand years, during that stretch between his first and second coming. And this is described as the first resurrection. God's people die, then they are brought to life to rule with Jesus in heaven. And so this first resurrection is not yet a bodily resurrection, but they are brought to life in heaven, a spiritual uh, resurrection, and they rule with Jesus during this period. And notice that it's only the martyrs and believers that are brought to life, that are resurrected during this time. The rest of humanity does not come to life. Then let's take a look at verse 6. There it says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so the second death that John is talking about here is God's final judgment. And he's saying when that comes, these believers will not be affected by it. Okay, so let's look at now what happens at the end of the thousand years. We're going to take a look at verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Okay, those are um, figures from Ezekiel's prof uh, prophecy in Ezekiel 38. And it says uh, that um, he's released from prison to deceive the nations, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's glory, the city he loves, talking about the church. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So John tells us that Satan will be released for a short time to deceive the nations once more. And again, this is another picture of what we have seen with the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, where things get really bad right before Jesus returns. But we're told that this short period of time of uh, Satan being released to deceive again uh, will end with God's judgment. In a flash, we see fire coming out of heaven, destroying Satan, just as we saw happen to the beast and the false prophet in earlier chapters. And so that brings us to the final judgment. Once Satan is defeated, Jesus then judges all humanity. He separates the sheep from the goats, just as he said he would in Matthew 25. So let's take a look at Revelation 20, uh, verses 11 through 13, as 
uh, John describes this judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Okay, so we get this picture of God on his throne, right? It doesn't describe God. It doesn't tell us what he looks like, just that it is God on the throne. And now all humanity comes before him. And they all have to give an account. There's no avoiding God. There's no hiding from him. And we've already seen two groups of people. The martyrs, along with those who died believing, who've been resurrected to life and are ruling with Christ during this thousand-year period. That's one group. And then the second group is everyone else, who John calls the dead. And the dead are even, we're told, brought up out of the sea. The sea was the place of chaos, right? And so there's, again, no hiding from God. Even if you've died at sea, you will be brought up and you will come before God. And so what we see is an an opening of books. Two different types of books, though. So with all of humanity now standing before God to give an account. Again, there's no avoiding him, no hiding from him. And so we get this first set of books. We'll call it the book of deeds. And so the dead, which is that second group, is judged according to what they have done. Now, you may have seen, uh, there was a movie in the early 90s that, uh, that I love called Defending Your Life, Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. And it's about uh, sort of this, uh, this place called Judgment City. And everyone goes there after they die, and they have to go on trial to defend their lives. And so Albert Brooks plays this character, and we get to, to go into the courtroom with him and see all these videos played of his life. And the prosecutor is making the case that this guy's lived in fear his whole life. He's made a bunch of uh, just bad judgments, and so he shouldn't be able to move forward. And Albert Brooks falls in love with Meryl Streep's character, who's just this amazing woman. And we walk into her courtroom, and, and she's doing things like rescuing people from burning buildings. And of course, she's going to get to move forward, but... But will Albert Brooks? But I love the idea of this this judgment city and your life kind of on trial. And I think that is what we see with the book of deeds here. And so the dead are being judged by what they've done. And imagine if there were charges brought against you or me for just one day. Now, the thing is, uh, in God's court, we're not judged by uh, 
um, whether we just, you know, made some bad choices or lived in fear, but we're judged by our thoughts, by our words, our deeds, even our motivations, even the things that we should have done but did not do. And so imagine the list of charges that would be brought forward if it was just one day. It would be quite the list. Now let's let's even minimize it for just uh, the sake of math here. Let's let's say that through the course of uh, your life, you average sinning three times a day, right? That would be a radical underestimate, but we'll just go with three times a day. And so if you had three times a day that you sinned against God, that you violated his law, his commands for you, uh, that would be over a thousand charges each year. You lived to 80 years old. Imagine the list of charges presented. 80,000 charges read. And again, this would be a huge, colossal underestimate. Who could stand? Who could defend themselves against tens of thousands of charges? And so the question for us then is this. Do Christians face this tribunal of God? Are we presented with a list of all our sins? I think I've used this story a while ago, so some of you, if you've heard it, forgive me, but it's just so good. Story of this woman uh, who lived in the Philippines, and uh, there was a missionary there, and she would come and tell the missionary each week, you know, I have conversations with Jesus. Oh, we, we talk, I talk, and then I listen, and he talks, and he tells me all kinds of things, and, and the missionary is very uh, not sure about this. So he comes up with, a, with an idea. He says one day, you know what? Um, you talk to God, he talks to you. Tell you what, next time you guys are having one of your conversations, ask him what the big sin was that I committed when I was in college. So she said, okay, I got gotcha. you. And so uh, the next week they meet again and he says, how's your week? Oh, good, good. Did you, uh, did you talk with Jesus this week? Oh, yeah, absolutely, I did. Did you ask him, uh, so what was the, the big sin that I committed in college? She said, oh, yeah, I did. The missionary says, well, what did he say? And she said, he told me he forgot. That is the gospel. That our sins are not remembered. I want to give us just a, a handful of verses to remind us of this. We heard it in our assurance of forgiveness today in uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircum of, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And so that record that stands against us, we're told in Colossians 2, that has been canceled. It's not being brought forth again. Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, 
and I will remember their sins no more. God promises to forget our sins. He'll remember them no more. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What's the distance between the east and the west? It's infinite, right? You you can't even measure it. That's how far uh, our sins have been removed from us. And the gospel is this, that Christ faced the judgment for us already. He already faced the tribunal. It was at the cross. And it is at the cross that all of our sins that all of our deeds were presented before God. And there, Jesus paid the penalty. So for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus, the record has been wiped clean with his blood. It's like traffic school, right? You go, the price has been paid, the record is wiped clean. I call the insurance company, how many offenses do you have? None, even though I got that ticket that I went to traffic school for. Record has been wiped clean. No offenses. That is what we have in Jesus. And so for us, there is a second book that is opened. Not a book of our sins. But this book is the book of life, and that is the hope for us. That our names are written in this book. Revelation, uh, Revelation 13, 8 says this, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world uh, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so what I'm showing you here is this extended title. Um, here he's talking about judgment, but we see this book of life of the lamb who was slain. So you know whose deeds are attached to this book? It's the deeds of Jesus. It's his life. It's his death. It's his resurrection. That is the book where we find our names. We are judged upon his deeds, not ours. And that is a great comfort and a great hope. So how do we know if our names are written in this book? We know if we have faith in Jesus Christ. We know that our names are in that book if we are trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for our salvation. And this is not just an intellectual assent but it is a trusting him with our lives. It is a living for him faith. It is a following him faith. And so your faith is then evidence that your name was written in the book of life before even the creation of the world. What a gift. And so what we're given here then to close this chapter is both this hope and a great warning. Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. There it says, then, the death, uh, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so again, 
in this chapter, we see great hope and we see great warning. If we want to know what to do with our guilt and shame, we lay it before the cross of Christ. That is where God sees it and deals with it. And then our record will be wiped clean. And what a comfort that is. So I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live in guilt. I don't have to live in shame because it's already been dealt with by Jesus Christ at the cross. And so that leaves me in a place of freedom and of joy. And the more I believe it, the more freedom and joy that I have. And so if you are still dealing in that guilt and shame, you can't make yourself stop feeling that. Just try really hard. Don't feel guilt. Don't feel shame. You can't make yourself do that, right? And so the way that we're freed from it is by believing, by clinging to the gospel more and more, by preaching the gospel into our hearts more and more. The more we do that, the more we believe, the more we become free. And so, church, that is why we gather, to encourage one another to believe this to be true. We can believe it here so easy, but then trying to connect it to here becomes so much more difficult. And so that's why we can't do this alone. We have to encourage one another. We have to do this in community to believe, to believe and follow together and to believe that that is the path to joy and to freedom. And the warning here is for those who refuse to believe that there is a torment coming. Now, these words, again, are uh, vivid imagery. Uh, There's not a literal lake of fire, but it's something like a lake of fire. It's something so terrible, the only imagery used to describe it is it's like a lake of fire. That sounds horrible. And that is waiting for all those who have to go before God in his tribunal and attempt to argue a case of tens upon tens of thousands of offenses that no one could stand. And so if you have not put your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ, I plead with you to give it to him today. Give him your life. Bow the knee to him because he has paid your debt. Amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we give you thanks for these words. Thank you for showing us once again at another angle the victory of Jesus, the defeat of the dragon, of the devil, of Satan himself. And Lord, we thank you for this picture that you give us of, uh, of what comes after. Um, that there is a judgment for all of humanity, and that as your children, our records have been wiped clean. Your scriptures promise that over and over. So help us to believe that to be true. And to have confidence through faith that our names are written in the book of life. And Lord, I pray for anyone listening that, that has not trusted Jesus um, to hear this warning, this plea of what is coming, that you do not want to face 
uh, God on trial for your life. And so put your hope in Jesus. So Lord Jesus, soften those hearts, empty them of whatever it is refusing to, to bow, of pride uh, or whatever it is, and bring them into joy, into freedom, and help us live as a community of joy and freedom. And so Lord, we pray all these things in the mighty and precious name of Jesus and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.